Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, President Donald Trump's relationship goes from chilly to frosty, and it's not just Democrats who are giving him agita. We're going to be talking to a couple of our reporters about uh, a brewing resolution to disapprove of President Trump's national emergency declaration uh, regarding the uh, southern border and the handful of Republicans who are prepared to join Democrats in uh, supporting that motion. Plus, we're going to talk about Bernie Sanders and 2020. Things shaping up a lot differently for him this time around, entering the race as a frontrunner. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the continued conflict between uh, his campaign and folks who worked for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and why that continues to be something that's happening now, uh, four years later. As always, before we jump in, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. Today, that's March the 7th. So it is all up to date as of then. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome in our guests. We have from the Politico White House team, Nancy Cook in the studio. Good to see you, Nancy. Oh, thanks for having me. Also here in the studio, as always, senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Scott. And on the line from the Capitol, Burgess Everett from our congressional team. Hey, Burgess. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, time for our first data point for... As of our taping, four Republican senators say that they will vote to oppose President Donald Trump's emergency declaration over the situation at the U.S. border. It's a setback for the president, and it sets up potentially his first ever veto uh, in in his third year in in the White House. Uh, Burgess... Take us in here with, with with a few exceptions. You know, the, the attempted repeal of Obamacare comes to mind, a few other things. But for the most part, congressional Republicans have generally been with Donald Trump when he needed them and, and, and when he didn't need them, for, frankly, uh, over the first you know two and a quarter years of his presidency now. So what's going on with this emergency declaration? Well, the big difference is that Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, cannot prevent a vote on it. And so this would be, you know, I think if, if if you could just bring up whatever over the past two years on trade, on foreign policy, uh, even on the border, you know, I think you'd have plenty of Republicans voting against the president, even though these would be difficult votes for them to take. Uh, by controlling the Senate floor, Mitch McConnell can prevent a lot of these votes. You know, there was a point uh, last summer, especially when Republicans were just so angry about the tariff program. And I think if you had a vote uh, to disapprove of the president's actions then, you know, it very well would have gotten a quarter to more of the Republican conference, but Mitch McConnell didn't bring it up, so you don't see that. Uh, this uses this arcane, uh, more than 40-year-old law uh, 
uh, to disapprove of the president's national emergency. It's never been done before. Uh, Democrats and some Republicans argue that a president has never been denied money by Congress and then sought to declare a national emergency to get it before. So we're kind of in this unprecedented terrain, and that's how you end up with a vote that Republican leadership probably doesn't want to take and a vote that the president is going to lose and have to veto this disapproval resolution. That's really interesting. Nancy, so how is the White House handling this coming rebuke uh, that, that, that's kind of coming, coming down the pike? Take, take us inside what's going on at the, on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, as you so often do. So it, it's been interesting. There's been an evolution this week in how the White House has thought about it. I would say earlier in the week, they were trying to take a more hands-off approach. Um, they were sending lawyers from DOJ to meet with individual senators and try to, um, you know, assuage their legal concerns or any concerns about um, the constitutionality of declaring a national emergency. But I would say there was a big change yesterday in that and Trump has started to get involved. Um, I was told by one White House official uh, yesterday that the idea of Republicans defecting and not supporting him is coming up more and more in meetings. This is something that he's tracking. Um, he did talk with McConnell about it yesterday. They had a phone call. And so I think he is, um, I think the White House is becoming a bit more alarmed about this lack of support and they're, they're starting to pay more attention. And I think Trump is starting to, uh, you know, lobby individual senators himself on it. Burgess, can you, who are these senators? What what do they have in common? Are a lot of them up for re-election in 2020? Are they from you know blue or purple states? They you know ideologically they don't have much in common. Uh, there's different reasons to oppose uh, the president on this. Uh, Tillis, Senator Tillis from North Carolina, he's up for re-election in a purple state, and so is Susan Collins of Maine. So those are two of the four senators who are out there saying we don't. We're not going to support the president's position on this on the Senate floor. Uh, some of the other folks who are thinking about voting against it or are voting against it, like Rand Paul, you know, are basically from another Republican Party, uh, or Mike Lee. Who, these are two more libertarian, very conservative members. Um, so more often than not, you're finding that it's a constitutional concern. These these Republicans basically recognize the hypocrisy in disapproving and fuming about President Obama's executive actions on immigration and then going along with sort of this extra constitutional uh, use of the National Emergencies Act by President Trump. And so they're trying to stay consistent. And they also recognize the president's veto will not be overridden. So it's sort of a safe vote. You know, if you're going to try to show some distance or consistency uh, on your positioning, which, you know, there's a lot, been a lot of hypocrisy in both parties over the past decade. This is a place to do it without real consequence other than an embarrassing vote. And where where's Cory Gardner, the uh, Republican senator from increasingly blue Colorado? He is in the mix. I do not think he likes the national emergency uh, declaration. He's also been somebody who's basically supported any immigration reform effort that the Senate has considered. Um, so he's sort of in a unique spot. He does not want to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> he basically, you know, told me that he's not saying anything more about this until he votes. Uh, so it's hard to say. I, I, I mean, my gut would tell me he's probably going to vote to disapprove. But right now, there's a very big discussion going on among, among Republicans of whether they can rewrite this resolution so that it is less of a direct rebuke of the president, maybe acknowledges that we have a problem at the border, then they feel more comfortable 
voting for it. Uh, so, you know, kind of stay tuned, but he's certainly one of the people that, you know, I would have in the lean voting yes to disapprove at this point. Interesting. And it's it's such an interesting uh, uh, dynamic, Charlie, uh, for, for folks like Cory Gardner and, and some of the other folks up for re-election. I mean, Burgess and our colleague James Arkin had a story this morning where they talked to David Perdue, the senator from Georgia, uh, who, who said, you know, pretty unequivocally that, uh, you know, he's had colleagues in the past who kind of split with Trump when they were up for reelection and lost, and he's not going to do that, right? And then, but you know, Georgia might be a battleground state in 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 twenty twenty, maybe, but it's he's got a little more wiggle room to to stick with Trump than say a Gardner or a Collins or. Uh, you know, Martha McSally in Arizona. It's and and there's this we've talked about on the show a lot, right? This push and pull between you you stick with the president and potentially alienate moderates, or do you break with him to try and get moderate votes, but you alienate your own base? Yeah, I think uh, from from what I can tell, there there's a lot of folks that are trying to make sense of the fluidity of the post 2018 midterm uh, election situation. Meaning, uh, if you're a Republican, one of the things you know is back home, um, most of your base still loves the president. They're still with the president, you know, depending on the state, you know, it varies by state, but, you know, in nowhere is it less than, say, 70 or 75 percent of the Republican base that uh, thinks very highly of uh, Donald Trump. And so if you buck the president in many states, you are playing with fire and you're almost begging for a primary challenge. And nobody obviously wants a primary challenge because in, in modern politics, you know, that's almost as dangerous and maybe more dangerous than a general election challenge. So you have to factor in that. How is the base going to take uh, going to handle your departure from uh, uh, supporting the, the president or being in lockstep support on the president. However, you know, post-2018, it changes the calculus for, for some senators and nowhere more so than in the purpling or, you know, lean blue states, places like Burgess mentioned, like Colorado or, or other places where the president isn't necessarily an asset. And, and you know, if you think of somebody like David Perdue, who we mentioned earlier, in Georgia, that's a tougher call because on the one hand, it's a pretty Republican state. Uh, it is a state that uh, the president carried. Having said that, what, uh, what came out of the 2018 elections had to have been very alarming for Republicans. So if you're a Republican who uh, typically draws well in the metropolitan areas, meaning the, the once very Republican suburbs surrounding Atlanta, um, then you might think twice and you may not be uh, you, uh, as uh, inclined to stay in lockstep support of the president because the president lost so many suburban Republicans in Georgia. Uh, having said that, if you're David Perdue, you also make the calculus, well, if my if my base is in rural Georgia, well, the president is still very strong uh, in rural Georgia. So, you know, you might be inclined to go that way. So I think for a lot of members, they're still trying to figure out uh, what are the politics of Donald Trump within the Republican Party. And I mean, Nancy, where does that stand with with Donald Trump right now? We've seen him go off in the past at, at, at Republicans who have bucked his his preferences on any number of of issues. Do, do you think this is going to be the sort of issue that could prompt a little bit of an explosion from him, or uh, or not? No, I absolutely think it will. I think that you know one of the things that we've seen consistently throughout his presidency is this um, need to have loyalty from people, and and there's always been this sense that. You know, the branches of the government shouldn't be distinct from the presidency, and that includes Congress. You know, he sort of feels like lawyers at the Department of Justice need to be loyal to him. Law enforcement needs to be loyal to him, members of Congress. And we've seen him express that repeatedly. So that's why I feel like the White House and, and the president are starting to get concerned because this is an instance of um, Senate Republicans potentially bucking him. And I think that 
they're aware of, you know, the whole reason that they reopened the government was because they were losing the support of Republicans. Um, it wasn't because, you know, Trump otherwise would have kept going. So I feel like he's very attuned to that relationship. And I, I do think in the past he has targeted people who have spoken out against him. We saw that with Mia Love, for instance, after she lost her seat after the midterms. He said, you know, she should have supported me. Um, so I, I think that uh you know, if history is correct and, and carries out in this case, we will see him potentially target people who say they're not going to support this because he also sees the border wall and the whole issue surrounding this as a key 2020 message. And, and he's going to want everyone lined up behind him on this. So, Burgess, in terms of uh, timing and logistics, what what happens when from from here on out? When when When's the vote and kind of what happens after that? The vote is probably next Thursday, uh, right as they go into a recess. Um, They may even pair it with a vote on the war in Yemen, which some Republicans also oppose. So he could actually face two vetoes in the next month, which would be very interesting, obviously, considering he's faced none. Um, Right now, everybody's sort of on a hold pattern within the conference. They're trying to figure out what they're going to vote on next week. You know, there is this House resolution... Republicans would prefer not to vote on that if they can, uh, which would then lead to if they pass something that's a little different, uh, maybe including language saying we do have a problem at the border, but we just don't like the national emergency declaration. Then you get into a conference with the House. Things drag out. The story continues, but maybe the veto is delayed or Trump withdraws the national emergency or any other number of factors. So right now, uh, you know, you got four, you got 51 votes. That's all you need uh, to disapprove. But what exactly the disapproval looks like is sort of up for grabs right now. And there's a lot of questions being asked uh, among Republicans about that and what they're going to vote on. And I don't expect to have a great whip count until Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. I mean, these folks in the Republican Party don't want to talk about this. They're so sick of me bugging them about it. Uh, When I see them, some of them just say I haven't decided before I can even ask my question. (laughs) Uh, So it's definitely, you know, you can see why they McConnell and other folks warned against this to begin with, because it's just been sort of a multi-week draining exercise for them at this point. And one of one of many multi-week draining exercises for uh, for, for for the White House and the Republican Party uh, over and for reporters covering them. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> In recent weeks, well, Burgess, thank you so much for uh, for taking us through that. Of course. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And Nancy, thank you as well. Of course. Anytime. Well, we'll jump right from there into our next data point. Charlie's sticking around. And that data point is 25,000. An estimated 25,000 people packed into the first two campaign rallies for Senator Bernie Sanders, who, as we discussed last week or a couple weeks, I guess, uh, is uh, back on the trail uh, pursuing uh, the White House in 2020. Very reminiscent of the crowds he got last time around. And but of course, right now we're at the beginning of the campaign, whereas he had to kind of build up to that in, in 2015, 2016. And it's just indicative of, of uh, the fact that we're, we're kind of in a different world in 2019, 2020, when Bernie Sanders, the upstart of the last presidential campaign, is, is coming into this one as one of the favorites. And uh, we have on the line national political reporter Holly Otterbein to, to help us sort through that a little bit. Hi, Holly. Hi, it's good to be here. 
So, so Holly, t- tell us a little bit about how, you, you know, you, you were covering these rallies over the weekend. Uh, we, we talked about the donation numbers that Sanders has brought in, the huge donation numbers, clearly uh, the, the poll numbers. Clearly, there's a big following uh, that he has out there, and it's put him in this uh, upper echelon of, of early Democratic contenders uh, in, in 2020. Couldn't be more different than the last time around. I, w- I was hoping, you know, you could tell us a little bit about how Sanders and his campaign are have adapted to this new world, not not to mention the Democratic Party uh, as a whole. But could, could you tell us a little bit about what's different this time from the start for Bernie Sanders? Yeah, I think a lot of things feel different. Um, I mean, first and foremost, his campaign kickoff rallies this last weekend were really focused on his biography. And he is known as being someone who hates to talk about himself, hates to talk about these sort of ish, these sort of things that aren't the issues. Um, but uh, you know, after being pushed by his staff, um, his two campaign kickoff rallies really addressed his heritage. He talked a lot about um, his Jewish background, a lot about growing up working class, living paycheck to paycheck, and um, his civil rights activism. And these are all things that he really hasn't talked that much about in the past and that his advisors have for a long time encouraged him to talk about. Um, they, they see these things as a strong story, particularly um, in the Trump era. They think it's a good contrast against President Trump, and he, he actually contrasted himself a lot um, during the rallies, uh, you know, kind of talked about his his background growing up in a house that often had a lot of financial anxiety, um, you know, as opposed to President Trump, who, of course, um, grew up very privileged financially. So um, he's doing it so far. I think one question is whether or not he continues to talk about this or or if the campaign is going to have to talk about his biography for him. Right, right. Charlie, what what strikes you most about the? I mean, you you were were watching Sanders from the beginning in 2015 too, uh, ed- editing coverage of Politico. I mean, it's it's night and day. Yeah, the the big difference is the announcement. I mean, we sent Holly to Chicago and Brooklyn. First of all, he had several uh, big events to to roll out the campaign, as Holly mentioned. But we actually sent a reporter on the road to cover them because he's a major candidate and a front runner, and uh, you know, arguably back in 2016 or 2015 when he launched no one was paying attention no one took his announcement seriously uh, there weren't that many reporters there he what walked out of the out in front of the capitol made some remarks with the wind blowing his hair wasn't combed and then he went back in and no one really took him seriously as a political force and so the biggest change is that now he goes in uh, not as the maverick not as the underdog but as you know sort of a powerful uh, entity and somebody who is the front runner i mean his whole world has been reversed from a campaign perspective now one one thing that hasn't changed and and Holly you uh dug into this in a story this week one thing that hasn't changed from 2016 is that there's still a lot of hard feelings uh between uh kind of the 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 folks who were around Hillary Clinton in 2016 and and Bernie Sanders and 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 his campaign team and that's uh th- those feelings are still pretty raw it seems yeah um i was really struck by the fact that david brock who is a longtime clinton ally, ally um, who founded a super PAC for Clinton um, in the 2016 campaign, he actually reached out to me proactively to talk about Sanders and 
to criticize him, um, to say that he didn't think that, you know, he would be able to unite the different wings of the party, that um, big donors would be reluctant to support him potentially in a general election. And so he, he was coming out and, and doing this proactively. And that I thought that was really interesting and indicative of something. And then we saw, um, you know, throughout his campaign kickoff launch rally weekend, um, and really in the couple weeks since he announced generally, Several former Clinton staffers criticized everything from his past policies to his rally speech to everything else in between. Um, and so it shows that there's still a lot of raw feelings there, I think, um, and that, you know, this could potentially be something of a challenge for Sanders because a lot of these people, um, you know, are on cable television a lot and have, uh, you know, pretty big Twitter followings. And so they can influence the dialogue. Yeah, that that was kind of the the next question I was going to ask you is like how does this how does this matter for him? Like, is it is it just kind of sour grapes? Is it like um, you know me, media catnip a little bit for the, this this fighting, or is, is it something that's actually going to affect the the campaign? And could it affect Sanders' attempts to win new, over new voters? So one of the things that David Brock said, as I referenced earlier, was that you know big donors are a little bit wary and um, might be reluctant to support him in a general election, and and. Brock actually interestingly said that the Sanders people might take that as a compliment. And in fact, actually, Jeff Weaver, um, his former campaign manager, who's now a top uh, advisor of his, you know, said basically when people like Brock were criticizing us in 2016, that we never did better. Um, that's when we raised the most money. That's when we brought out the most people to rallies. And so I think, uh, you know, on some level, depending on which former Clinton ally it is, there's a thinking in the Sanders team that it could benefit them. On the other hand, um, you know, it's not good for them if if former Clinton staffers are bashing him on cable TV, um, you know, particularly maybe on some of the things that he's been criticized for in the past, like not talking about race um, well. And so I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. Um, can be kind of good in some ways and, and bad in others. And another thing is, you know, it, it prolongs the sort of fight from 2016 that a lot of people are sick of, um, you know, at a time when Sanders is saying that he is seeking to bring the country together. Yeah, Charlie, what do you what do you think about that? I mean, it, it I'm, I'm fascinated by the, 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 the big donor angle from, from Brock, which just seems to have like... It, it's literally coming from another era of politics. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be a persistent theme through the primary. I think we expect that because, you know, this is partly about politics in the sense that uh, you're talking about when you talk about Clinton forces, you are talking to some degree about uh, the party's establishment uh, versus the upstarts and, and uh, versus uh, people that were, you know, outside the party establishment. But it's also deeply personal. Uh, I mean, when you talk to the uh, former Clinton staffers, uh, they believe that Bernie played a undetermined, possibly significant role in contributing to Hillary Clinton's defeat because they felt that uh, he stayed in the race long beyond uh, when it was mathematically possible for him to win. Uh, They think that uh, he was not, um, you know, it just took too long for him to come on board and he was too demanding. uh, And even they and they're still upset. They're upset at things like he said the other day on The View. Uh, there's just not a warm relationship between the two candidates, meaning Hillary and and Bernie. And so that gets expressed through the staff as well. The big question is, like, can you quantify that? And I don't think we can now. And I don't even know if we can la- 
later on into the campaign. That tension is always going to be there. Uh, the you know the media is going to continue to report on it because it's catnip. It's it's sort of fascinating uh, in a lot of ways. It tells you a lot uh, about the party. Um, but what effect does it have in the end? Does it have an effect on turnout? I, I suspect probably not, only because the party is going to be so united in fall, um, fall of 2020 to take out Donald Trump. I think had it been a different Republican nominee, maybe the, the circumstances might be different. But with Donald Trump, there's so much animus toward him. There's uh, I, I think this this idea that it's you know Donald Trump is almost among many Democrats an existential threat to the constitutional order because of all those forces I think ultimately probably the two sides uh, come together and and get along but but you know it, these wounds are, are still kind of raw four years later so it will take a long time for them to go away. It's interesting. I mean you know and 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 this happens with every party and not well with both parties in almost every presidential race right there there end up being hard feelings to to some degree after primaries there there were hard feelings. Between between Obama and Clinton uh, and their supporters in in 2008 for for quite some time, and then it kind of it all it all faded away. I'm just I'm I'm fascinated by the the level to which this one hasn't hasn't disappeared, and the extent to which it it really does seem like you know you've got former Clinton folks who are kind of driving it, but also as, as you said, Holly Sanders folks who are almost welcoming. Uh, welcoming their hatred, to to paraphrase Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know, I mean, another thing I think might explain why this has persisted um, is that there's an ideological divide here. And actually, one thing that Brock said to me that doesn't involve Sanders gets at that, which is that he mentioned that Warren would also have a hard time um, uniting the different wings of the party. She, of course, is um, left wing, uh, probably, you know, is closer to Sanders than any other candidate in the race. Um, so I think that speaks to the other thing that's going on here, which is that there there is a real ideological divide between these two camps as well. Absolutely. I just I just wonder, I wonder if um, the the force of personality of Clinton's candidacy kind of papered over or allowed folks like Brock and, and some other to, to kind of paper over in their minds some of the huge shifts that were happening in the party that and and rendered them a little blind to to some of the changes that are happening in terms of the, the shift toward uh, small dollar fundraising, the kind of shift to the left on any number of issues. Um, I I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch. <laughs> I think it's also about respect too. I mean, if you imagine if you're from the Bernie camp, you feel you were never respected by the the uh, Clinton campaign for for your accomplishments. That's you definitely feel, true. You feel that they put their uh, finger on the scale with uh, of the election with the DNC, uh, and even you know it, to the end there was some question as to whether the uh, the mainstream of the party would acknowledge this significant accomplishment by this upstart campaign, and even today. Uh, you know, I hear when I, you know some echoes of that when I talk to supporters of Bernie, the idea that they were never accepted for for what they were able to accomplish and fought at every you know step of the way. Even if that may not be true, uh, I think there is a sense of grievance you know on, in the Bernie camp as well that uh, they were thwarted and they're the you know in many ways they drove the ideological debate to where it stands right now. All these issues that seemed you know completely. Uh, you know, wildly out of the mainstream in 2016 when Bernie started talking about them, they're now very much squarely in the mainstream. And that is, you know, that is a tremendous accomplishment of that of that 2016 uh, campaign. And yet I think many people that consider themselves supporters of Bernie feel like that's never really been acknowledged from the uh, pro-Clinton forces. Well, we'll leave it there. I mean, the, this is going to play out over the next year, year plus. It's going to be going to be interesting. There's going to be a lot of efforts, I assume, to to 
uh, try and make sure those wounds heal. And then some people are going to keep ripping that scab off over and over again. So, Holly, thank you so much for, for taking us through it and good story this week. Thank you for having me. And Charlie, thank you as always. For thank being you, here. Scott, as always. And as always, a big thank you to all of you listeners for tuning in. Uh, here at the end of the show, we're going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan. Stacy San Severino of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Micaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Stacy. Listeners, we found Stacy because she emailed us to say she was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, please let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.